Welcome back to the Lawali Life Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is a mixture of conversations with amazing leaders in their fields, talking about the greatest stresses and losses and challenges they've had to overcome and how they came back from them, with tips and inspiration from how you can come back through yours. I talk mainly about stress and loss in this podcast and focus largely on stress because it's a fate we all share to go through stress and to experience loss. So I want to bring you amazing speakers from around the world to share with you their inspiring stories to make you realize that we can all come through our own and there are little tiny things we can do every day to keep us at our best. In today's episode, I'm joined by the wonderful Yada Elui, who is the founder of the incredible lifestyle platform Eat, Burn, Sleep. So Yada, her whole ethos is around anti-inflammatory lifestyle and diet, and her story as to why she came to this realization is truly incredible, from healing her own extremely rare autoimmune disease, I'm not going to spoil the story because she's going to tell you, and that led her to all the work she now does and creating this incredible platform. When we actually did this interview, I hadn't actually joined the platform yet, but I did in the last four weeks, and I have to say, it is truly such an easy, incredible lifestyle to follow. I've already seen such amazing changes in my health and my body, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So really kindly, Yalda has given all you wonderful listeners of mine a 20% discount code for her platform. So go and check it out. Link is in the show notes, and all you have to do to claim it is use the code Alice. 20 as an Alice20 at checkout. And I hope you enjoy this wonderful episode. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm so excited to be able to speak to you about, I mean, everything from nutrition to uh, stress, loss, inflammation, going to go all over the place. But um, I'd love to just begin, first of all, with, you know, your story for how you even became interested in understanding nutrition on a really sort of deep level. Yeah, so I have always been interested in health because um my maternal grandfather was very much into um, natural healing because my grandmother suffered from autoimmune um, from an autoimmune condition, and uh, I remember the poor thing. He, he she had to drink all these awful potions that he would make, like <laughs> with raw potatoes and egg yolks and all these weird herbs and she was such a nice <laughs> you know wife she didn't want to hurt his feelings so she she was always game for his awful terrible healthy potion <laughs> <laughs> and um, but he knew the he knew the all the properties of so many plants you know he would make sage tea and oregano tea he had so I learned quite a bit through him then my dad is a very healthy person so I grew up, um, both of my parents are quite sporty, but my mom, um, who has an autoimmune condition like I do and my grandmother too, is the kind to just pop the pills and not make any effort. And she has Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease. Um, and, you know, for example, you don't want to have gluten if you, if you have Hashimoto's because the molecule of gluten is very similar to um, uh, the protein of the thyroid 
and many people with Hashimoto's have gluten intolerance. I worked that out very early on and she just didn't care. She'd have the bread and the pasta, <laughs> she'd pop the pill. Interestingly, my father, who was himself a pharmacist, every time I was, I was a bit ill, he would just tell me, just have a glass of water. Don't take anything. You don't need anything. So I, I had both things going on and I saw my mom's health not getting better with the years. And what I know now is she was de developing a lot of things linked to inflammation. A few years, you know, as I grew up, I was sometimes healthy, sometimes not, you know, uh, as a student, not so healthy. And, um, but when I had my first pregnancy, um, so originally my business was finance. So I did a business school in France and then I did a master's. Uh, I did my postgrad at the London School of Economics in accounting and finance. And then I worked on a trading floor, which I thought was great fun. I, I didn't feel stressed. I loved it. Like <laughs> my 20s, that was brilliant. And traveling all over the place. Um, but when I was pregnant with my first child, I developed a first autoimmune disease called ulcerative colitis. I had very mild symptoms. The doctors were panicking. I thought, why are they panicking? I'm feeling great. And I'm the kind to always minimize everything anyway. And everything went great. I had this beautiful baby boy. Everything went well. No problem. I couldn't understand why they were making such a big deal out of it. Because, you know, what I hadn't done is actually look up what might happen. Because I'm such a positive person. I was like, this is fine. It's, it's going to disappear tomorrow. It's nothing. Um, when my baby, first baby was nine months old, I became very sick. And I started losing a lot of weight. And for anyone who knows what inflammatory bowel disease is, it literally, you can't live a normal life. You're in pain a lot of the time. You're, so I quickly realized that uh, medication didn't fix it. It just stopped you to, from getting worse. So I started looking into ways of getting better. Um, I then had a second child and my health was up and down, up and down, but there was, the curve was going down. So I was slowly deteriorating. And when I was put on medication, the de deterioration was less fast. At that time, you didn't have social media, you didn't have YouTube. So I was reading a lot of research, buying books, trying to find forums online where people with similar conditions would talk to each other. And unfortunately, um, in 2012, so my first diagnosis was 2007. In 2012, I was diagnosed with something much worse called autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which is a very rare autoimmune condition uh, where your body destroys your own red blood cells. So basically, you don't have cells to carry oxygen to your organs. My heart rate when I got hospitalized um, I trust was 180 because my, my heart was pumping furiously wow. trying to get blood to my organs. You start forming clots in the blood so you can die at any time from a blood clot. Of course, your immunity is extremely low. You can die of anything like a common cold, any little infection. And when I was hospitalized, they didn't know what it was. 
a lot of people with hemolytic anemia at final stages of cancer. So that's what they assumed I had. I was jaundice because my bilirubin levels were very high. My, my, my liver was destroying red blood cells at a, producing red blood cells at a very fast pace. Um, and I remember when the hematologist gave me the, the diagnosis, they had a big smile on their face. And I'm someone who always keeps humor in life, okay? So I was in, I was in hospital, my brother was next to me, and hematologists are super nerdy because blood is so complex. It's basically the smartest doctors, okay? And if anyone who's a doctor is listening, please don't be offended, but you know exactly <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> every time you do a blood transfusion, you develop antibodies, blood is very complex. So these super nerds who are very clever, but clearly don't have much emotional intelligence, are so excited that I haven't got cancer. It's only hemolytic anemia, so I can be kept alive with blood transfusions. And so they gave me the diagnosis, giggling, so happy. I told my brother, oh, my God, we're like with a bunch of Asperger's people here. <laughs> They're so excited. Crazy. Cancer. Yes. And um, so I was put on 100 milligrams of serous a day, which is the highest dose you can take. And I was given blood, of course, because my hemoglobin was 4.7. Like four, you're in a coma, three, you're dead. So I was, wow. and the doctor, the GP said to me, it's quite extraordinary that you even stood on your feet. He said, only women can do this. Men at eight of hemoglobin, they're dead. Said, <laughs> and we all know about the man flu. <laughs> and I'm not being gender neutral here. Um, that was so funny. So he said to me, because I did something quite crazy the day before hospi being hospitalized, because of course being so sick, my brain was not working properly. Um, any uh, autoimmune disease uh, and all non-communicable diseases are linked to inflammation. If you have inflammation, you also have neuroinflammation, inflammation of the brain cells. My brain was not, and I looked so pale and yellow, and I was thinking, I need a walk. And I walked from where I live, near High Street, Kensington, all the way to Brompton Cross in South Kent. And I couldn't carry anything, so all I took is a key and a credit card. I couldn't carry because I didn't have the stamina, but I did that walk on 4.7 of hemoglobin. My doctor said, this is unheard of, only women can do this. How did you do that, Yalda? Oh I don't I, because I thought to myself, I'm looking really pale. I need some fresh air. I need some pink in my cheeks. So let's go for a big walk. It'll do me good. I was clearly out of my mind, um, not realizing how poorly I was. But I mean, this long story to explain how I started taking an interest in health. And unfortunately, the medication I was put on didn't work. The steroids didn't stop the hemolysis. I was put on anti, on immunosuppressants, which I was so against. And I kept telling the doctors, um, immunosuppressants make me very nervous because they lower your immunity. So yes, they do calm down the inflammation, but what about if I catch something? And they were like, no, don't worry. All, all the you know, major viruses are under control. And now, in, you know, thinking back, I'm like, you can't take anything for granted. You can't think, oh, you know, there's no more virus. I can be on immunosuppressants. I'll be fine. Um, and, but those didn't work anyway. 
when I was finally given them, they didn't work. So then they put me on something called anti-TNFs or biological drugs, uh, which are similar to cancer drugs, didn't work. So I had to find a solution. Every time you get a blood transfusion, you develop antibodies. It becomes hard to find new blood. So I took, I, I, I understood quite early on actually that I wanted to fix it, but then it became urgent. And in my quest, um, I was asking doctors, is it related to food? And of course they said no, because, because they can only put forward things that is backed by studies. There's no study showing a link between diet and ulcerative colitis or diet and hemolytic anemia because all studies have to be financed. They're either financed by food companies who want to sell something or pharma who want to sell something. There's always a rationale. Um, and also it doesn't really make money to work out what a diet is. <laughs> so I... They, at the beginning, I was, I was getting frustrated with them, but then I understood that they were doing their job. They have a scope, and they're working within their scope. And what I had to do was go out of the scope to try and find a solution. And one day, I was with my hematologist, Dr. Cooper, at Hammersmith Hospital in London, and she looked at my inflammation levels, my CRP, ESR markers, and I noticed that my gastroenterologist for my other condition was looking at those levels too. And I said to her, I said, Are the, is this the two things in common between my two diseases? Because I would often ask, what causes it? And they, and they didn't have a clear answer. They're like, oh, well, there is a mix of genetics, but not necessarily of an environment, but not necessarily. But indeed, they were right. There is not a single thing that causes an inflammatory condition or most diseases. There's not a single factor for a heart attack or diabetes or PCOS or, or Crohn's or um, psoriasis or asthma. It's a, it's a collection of, of factors. Um, so again, they were right, but when I asked Dr. Cooper, is this the thing in common between the two conditions? My inflammation marker, she said, yes. I thought, okay, I've got something here that's tangible. This is what I must troubleshoot. I will bring those markers down. I need to lower my inflammation levels. And that's when the penny dropped. Um, now you hear about inflammation in the, in the media, and especially since the pandemic, a year, two years ago, not so much. But back then, I had never heard of it, you know. Um, and I started researching this. And I started developing my own lifestyle, which was lowering my chronic inflammation through food. And it was, there was research, it, there was trial and error. It was, it was a mix. Observing myself, I did an elimination diet where I removed everything from my diet, but the one thing that I could digest, which was chicken soup. And like a baby, I introduced a new food every three days to try and see what was repopulating my gut with the right bacteria? I mean, what I've put myself through is slightly crazy. Amazing, though. But I had to because I realized quite quickly that a doctor 
no matter how good they are, it is still just their job. But for me, I had a two and a four year old the second time I almost died. Uh, it was my life. That would have been the outcome for you had you not gone on this path yourself because yes. they weren't doing anything that sadly was helping you. They, they were trying their best, but at some point, I think, um, yeah, some, you know, I think the hemolytic anemia, it, I mean, you don't die anymore, luckily, of ulcerative colitis unless you have a rupture in your colon that has been mismanaged. But hemolytic anemia can be a fatal condition. Um, and I, I, I thought to myself... I have two young children. I'm going to fix it because it's my life. It's their job. They're doing their best. They're being paid. But me, it is my life. And I'm not going to quit. I cannot do this for my children. I will fix it. And I stayed in the space in my head of, I will fix this. There's no other end to this story than me fixing this. I love that. I mean, where did you start, Eliada? Because you must have, first of all, you were in a place where you were feeling really ill, obviously so weak in your body. How did you manage, you know, that side of trying to just get yourself up on the morning and also learning as much as you possibly could to save yourself at the same time? It's so incredible. So, well, the whole story is quite long. You know, first diagnosis was 2007 and I was medication-free, I believe, in 2016, so nine years Wow. Um, and, and recovery is not a straight line. So a lot of people who, whom I help, who sign up to my online platform and who are who I help one-on-one, um, I say to them, it is not a straight line. There are ups and downs. There's so many things that impact your inflammation, the way you sleep, the way you eat, the way you move, the way you think, uh, the weather outside, are you in your home between four walls during a pandemic or are you on the beach ha- having earthing and sunshine, vitamin D? There are so many factors. And what I try and teach people is, is what I've done for myself. So I don't just help people get better. I teach them what I've learned. So they start tapping into their own health and they become very in tune with that. So after a while, you understand that some things make you feel better under certain circumstances and some not. And also our gut bacteria changes constantly. So when years ago I was intolerant to so many foods, I no longer am because I have improved my gut bacteria. My resistance to inflammatory triggers is much higher. So I couldn't drink any alcohol for years. Now I really enjoy a few glasses of wine, thank God. (laughs) You know, things change always. It's nothing set in stone. It depends um, on where people are. But the way I did it was keep observing, observing, tweaking, changing. And in a way, you have no, 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 no choice but being patient with your health because you're stuck with it anyway. So I couldn't say, okay, I quit. I'm going to get bigger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's health is for life. I think something you said earlier as well really made me think about how 
well, you said your dad was a pharmacist and even he would say to you, like, you don't need this pill, you know, just have some water. And obviously there's there's a place for modern medicine in so many different ways, but the majority of Western medicine, unless it's functional, which is very limited in the UK, I mean, in America and California, that's more of a, a thing. But, you know, straightforward um, traditional Western medicine is a lot about sort of putting a bandage over a wound as opposed to finding out what that root causes from a, you know, a lifestyle perspective. And I think you obviously doing that on your own and finding out what was actually causing all this beyond just wanting to take medication is such an incredible story and example of people, for people to understand that, you know, there are, there are ways out of these things from really understanding your own body and your own health. So, I mean, for you on that side of, you know the bandage over the over the wound of the western medicine you know what was what was your experience with that like what would your dad always say to you about that kind of thing did you grow up thinking that was a good option or just the complete opposite so the first thing i want to say is to anyone who comes to me and says oh i want to go off medication i always advise against it and I'm very much on the side of doctors in the sense that medication saved my life, okay? It stopped me from, or, or, or it allowed me to lo- not lose my colon, for example, okay? Mm. Not be fitted with a bag. It, it, it limited the damage. However, over the long run, chronic inflammation makes people resistant to medication as well. So whether it is antidepressants or corticosteroids, or metformin for people with diabetes and PCOS. So I have a lot of doctors who recommend my lifestyle to their patients because it makes their work more effective. It all works together. And unfortunately, a doctor cannot eat for you, sleep for you, exercise for you. People have to take responsibility. And you can't just blame the doctor saying, oh, it doesn't work and that, because you're leading such a terrible lifestyle. So I think there's a a place and time for everything. Um, I, when I was really sick, I traveled the world to see doctors because when someone can't, you you know, you always think that the solution is outside or or I did, I, I was desperately looking. So I traveled to see a lot of doctors, to see a lot of different nutritionists, naturopaths, um, alternative doctors of all sorts. And I've learned a lot. So no one could fix me, but all this was not in vain. There are things I've learned that one should definitely not do. So (laughs) namely, that's anything extreme. If you are sick, you don't want to put your body through any shock. So you don't want to put through your body of a shock of stopping any medication too abruptly. You need to do that with your doctor, really well you know there's got to be a plan and I, and I worked with my doctors to stop medication in fact I asked them to lower my dosage even slower than what they recommended because I, I wanted to do such a soft landing for my body I didn't want my body to notice that I was off meds so because medication didn't fix me but removing it could worsen me. Hmm. Okay, so I did a very, very soft landing. I remember towards the end, I was asking my doctor, I said, okay, can I take a milligram? 
because you start at 40 milligrams of corticosteroids a, a week and then they say drop by five. And I was saying, can I drop by two, by one? Towards the end, I was like, can I cut the pill in two? I just want to take half the pill every day. You know, just very, very, very slowly. So I wouldn't crash and get sick again. So it's so important. You know, out there in the holistic space, I find that people can be very against modern medicine. And But if you have a, a bacterial infection, you want to take antibiotics if it's serious, because otherwise you can die from septicemia. Yeah. But it's my approach is very much about limiting the damage. I'm not a perfectionist. That's why on my lifestyle, you can have fun and have a drink. <laughs> and if you're not well, I strongly advise you follow a doctor's advice, but you also do your best to try and get off, you know, those drugs and live a healthy drug-free life. Yeah. I love that. So, okay, let's talk about the sort of ethos for Eat, Burn, Sleep, your platform, because it's it's so wonderful. And it's obviously been, as we've all heard, like birthed from such an amazing, you know, journey and experience. So what would you say is the sort of general ethos for the platform? So the ethos is, the, the number one thing is you cannot fully outsource health. As I was saying, no one can sleep for you, eat for you. And at the end of the day, you know, you can pay me to try and help you, but you've got to do it. (laughs) I give you all the information you want. I can give you the support, but at the end of the day, you cannot fully outsource help. That's the first thing. The second ethos, which um, is very against trend, but is a pillar of my principles is it is not about perfection, it is about damage limitation. Perfection is an extreme concept and extreme measures lead to extreme results. During my health journey, I would sometimes read things like, oh, take six uh, omega-3 pills fish oil pills a day because it's so anti-inflammatory. I remember a doctor saying that to me, an alternative doctor, integrity doctor. And um, I thought to myself, this is crazy. Imagine there is a downside to this. There's upside in everything, but there's also downside. I know that. And even too, too much of a good thing is bad for you. So my method is structured, science-backed, no-nonsense, common sense. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, don't do, I don't do extremes. I'm very measured. It's all about limiting the damage. And sometimes I'd rather give up a little bit on the upside to not tap into the downside. Yeah, I think that's so cool. It's so true, though. It's um, looking at, like you say, perfectionism. It's such a curse of the modern world. I mean, we all seem to, in various ways in our own life, want to strive for different parts of perfectionism, whether it's like the way we look or the way we feel, the way we're doing a certain thing. It's become this sort of backbone on modern society that's so unattainable and also causes people a lot of stress because, like you say, nothing is perfect. (laughs) Life, least of all us and there's always you know perfection and imperfection so what do you find helps you to like shy away from perfectionism yourself 
So being a, a really hard worker <laughs> and a high achiever, I suffer from that. Um, and I have learned as my expense that it is counterproductive. So I didn't do it with diets. Um, I mean, I did for 30 seconds, you know, went vegan for a little bit and raw food for a little bit. And that's the last thing you want to do if you have any tummy issue. Um, I have very quickly realized that it wasn't the right thing. But I can be a perfectionist when it comes to other things. And what has helped, really helped me is something Sheryl Sandberg said. She said, it's done is better than perfect. So as there are so many things that I work on, I have an online platform. I have retrained as a nutritional therapist over three years. Um, so that was a lot of work. I have two children. I have an investment company as well for my own investments. Uh, and plus all the other things that I love doing, you know, creating recipes, filming videos, workout videos for the platform, recording meditation videos, uh, managing a team, um, and more things that I want to do. I, uh, I'm, a book is going to come at some point. So I have learned that if I wanted to go forward, I had to let go of that because otherwise I was not going to go forward. So I often remind myself when I start becoming a perfectionist about things again, I think, okay, I strive for people to have results. I'm extremely results focused. That's fine because that, that yields, you know, that, that, that's productive. So being slightly perfectionist when it comes to helping others, that is productive. But being perf perfectionist with myself so everything is absolutely on point to my eye when other people might not even notice it, that's not worth it. Yeah. So very early on, I realized that given my work schedule and everything that I'm doing and all the recipes I'm creating, I have over 200 recipes on the platform, anti-inflammatory recipes. I thought, I, I haven't got time to do photo shoots for the food. It doesn't matter. It'll be pictures with my iPhone. It's great. It's going to look like the food people have in their own kitchen. They'll relate to it. When I film my workout videos, I don't have time to go to a studio and make it look all nice. Well, you know, it's in my living room. My sofa is next to me. And people, and sometimes I'm out or I'm in the countryside or I'm traveling. I'll just roll my mat out, stick the phone there. And they're completely fine with it. They understand I'm busy. They don't ask me to be in a studio with the perfect lighting. So that I've, I've accepted that. And it's been extremely healing, actually, doing this job from that standpoint. I love that. I think it's, and it's so true because... I think actually something that's quite off-putting anyway with um, like workout, um, big workout platforms, for example, I, you know, find that if it's too perfect, you're just like, this is so unattainable. It's making me feel even worse about working out. <laughs> How am I ever going to get there? You know, there's this six foot five model who's doing a Pilates kick and I'm never going to look like that. I'm five foot six. Or, you know, you're just like, what? <laughs> so I think it's, um, it's really nice to have those like real unperfect, but in, you know, imperfectly perfect things to show people that you can still give them amazing information and it still looks great, but it doesn't have to be essentially 
what people have been doing for the last decade of airbrushing everything and making things, whether it's on social media or in their work and real life, this sort of glossy image of everything's totally perfect. And I have time to be this perfect the whole time, which no one does. And I think it's really, really great that you just have made it really authentic and organic in you. I think that's really cool. You know, it's it's quite interesting what you're saying because, you know, I'm 42 years old. I'm not really the Instagram generation. I'm, I reluctantly uh, used that uh, medium to get out there. A friend of mine had to convince me, and especially coming from finance, our worst nightmare is to lose privacy. (laughs) (laughs) This is awful. This is a terrible idea. He was like, but this is how you're going to be able to help people. Um, But in any case, recently... Um, I so I don't really I don't really have time to look at other people's accounts. I'm so into my research and and work and all of that because I'm doing, you know, my research work is ongoing. Um, but recently during lockdown, I was quite bored and I started looking at what people were doing. And there was this game of you ask your followers or oh, ask me anything, and followers would ask people to show them old photos. So like, show us a picture of when you were 12, a teenager, and in your 20s, 30s, your first child, when you graduated. So I thought this is quite sweet. So I started sharing a lot of pictures from the past. And there was one comment that kept coming back to me. It's made me realize how people change their faces and pictures these days. Everyone kept saying, it's so nice you still look the same. <laughs> This is the number one comment. It's so nice. You still look the same. And I thought, oh my goodness, in which world do we live that everyone's practicing self-automutilation? It's <laughs> and, it is crazy. And airbrushing to the <laughs> so no one looks like they do. Um, yeah. It is crazy. I mean, that's what, I mean, what something that shocked me the other week I read was about the um, the percentage of young girls between 11 to 15 who are using, you know, those apps to change their face before they put photos on Instagram. And I just thought that's so incredibly sad that this is what we've managed to create for children, you know, this place where they don't feel safe enough to be themselves online and as a child. And I don't really know if we have the Kardashians to partly blame for this culture, or if, you know, the social media and everything, but it's just... It's really, really, really sad. I mean, how do you have kids, obviously, but they're, they're boys, aren't they? So how do you navigate that social media aspect as a parent? So they don't have social media. They're 11 and 13. Um, we said to them that they could get a phone age 13. Uh, but my 11-year-old has an iPod touch. But they're not allowed social media accounts. And my 13-year-old, I have the opposite problem where he forgets to take his phone, so I can't call him. (laughs) (laughs) However, what they do is they love games. Their thing is games, but also they're in boarding school, so there's less of that, and they're boys. So, you know, the way um, they look is not so important. But I was quite surprised where they... They started making comments about how girls look, because I guess that's what you start doing when you're a teenager. And they don't like it when they see girls, my 13-year-old, when he see a girl his age, he's known since he was small with makeup on, he doesn't like it. Uh, or where somewhere and he sees someone who's, you know, quite different from what they probably originally looked. My children pick up on this. I'm like, how do you know this person had... Uh, 
plastic surgery and they say, oh, it's obvious. So I'm wondering if there is not something in, inherent in us where we notice that the proportions or something is not. So maybe, maybe this is just a fashion, just like, you know, flare jeans in the 70s. Maybe this whole editing pictures thing is a fashion and we're going to look back at these edited photos thinking people were crazy. They really didn't look very good. So I'm hoping that this might go away. <laughs> I, I really hope that too. I hope that it comes to a place where we move into the trend of just being like as authentically yourself as possible in terms of image and online. And it would just definitely be more healthy for the younger generations. I'm always so grateful that, you know, social media wasn't around when I was that age and I was, you know, with my bunchies in and frizzy hair and scrunchies and <laughs> thinking about Kylie Jenner's lip kit. But, you know, it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy change. Obviously that has to be navigated and another stress on um, different parts of life. So I'd love to ask you as well, because I always ask everyone this on the podcast and you talked about your story, obviously with your health, which is obviously a huge amount of stress. Um, would you say that's the greatest stress and loss you've had to go through yourself? Uh, no, no, because it was me and not somebody I love. Uh, and also it taught me to not be scared of death because the, the second time I almost died, um, I had hemolytic anemia, I was carrying a baby by complete mistake, I got pregnant um, and, and my body rejected the fetus because my inflammation levels were so high. So. You know, I help a lot of people with fertility because chronic inflammation is a huge cause for lack of fertility. Well, so day, interesting. Yeah. That day I was, I was still having the regular blood transfusions. I was really worried about this pregnancy. The doctors would say to me, we can take you through this pregnancy. And I thought the wording was awful. And, um, and I didn't want to... I just didn't have the heart to, to, to terminate it. And I kept praying. I was praying to the universe to do the right thing, whatever was right. Um, and one day I, I woke up and I was meant to go for yet another transfusion, but I could tell I was miscarrying. So I told the doctors I arrived, they gave me the blood transfusion. I said, I think I need to go to the obstetrics ward because I'm having a miscarriage. They said, how do you know? I said, I can feel it. I went, they did a scan. They saw that the baby was perfectly fine. And they said, look, the heart is beating. You're eight weeks pregnant. Everything's fine. You're not having a miscarriage. And I could tell my body was so inflamed that it was rejecting the fetus. Even though the fetus was healthy, my body, the vessel, was not healthy to carry that pregnancy. What happened is I... A miscarriage happened and it was a Friday and it was during the shift in the evening. The, 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 I mean, Friday evening shift when there's a whole team for the weekend coming through, nurses and all of that. No one was paying attention when I was hemorrhaging. And I kept saying I'm hemorrhaging. There is something wrong happening. They kept seeing that I had a blood transfusion and a needle going through me so that like even if she's hemorrhaging, it's fine, she's getting blood. To cut a long story short, what they didn't notice is somehow I had bent the needle in my right arm where the blood was coming through so no blood was coming in. And I was having a serious hemorrhage. I was wow. bleeding to death. 
and I kept calling them. And then I was I was in a room where above me there was the premature babies, the the floor above, and the premature babies I kept in a room at 37 degrees. So the room underneath was boiling hot. So because I couldn't get their attention from the bleeding, I said, I'm too hot. I think I'm too hot. That's why I'm not feeling well. The nurses finally said, okay, fine. We'll change, we'll change your room. Um, and when they came to change me, take me from bed to another, I collapsed. And that's when they realized that I, I was empty of blood. So they put me back on the bed they lifted my feet immediately and put my head down so that to not have any brain damage from the lack of blood. And during that moment, my body, I had a separation. I looked at my body. It was very peaceful. I wasn't scared and I knew I was not dying. Maybe I was fooling myself, but I just knew that now I was taken care of, it was going to be okay. And then they looked at the transfusion. They realized the blood is too old. It's been there for four hours. Why is it not going through her arm? Oh, my God, the needle is bent. We need to throw this blood away. Luckily, there was another bag for me. So they put some fresh blood into me and a few more bags and put me in a different room. So what happened was, the reason why I'm talking about this is, although I almost lost my life, it was peaceful and not traumatic. In fact, it was very healing. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm very relaxed about it. Whenever it happens, you know, that time was not my time, clearly. However, I did suffer a loss in my life, which was terrible. And that was the tough one for me. It was um, in January 2016, uh, my cousin Leila Alawi, was a renowned French Moroccan photographer, which was like my little sister, got killed in a terrorist attack in Burkina Faso in Ouagadougou. Um, I mean, she, she got shot. She was the only person who survived. But then she died of her injuries three days later. And she was um, only 32 then, 33. Um, and that took me a year at least to recover. I had to have EMDR. I had to have quite a few things done to me to stop having the nightmares about the terrorist attack and, and stop trying to call her on WhatsApp because we used to talk all the time. So I'd be walking in London. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to ring Leila. And then I'm realizing she's dead. And I'd cry in the middle of the street. That was, for me, that was a very difficult loss. I mean, that must have been such a shock because obviously a terrorist attack is one of those things in life those you know as we call them macro stresses where you have no control over it you don't know when it's going to happen but it could essentially happen to anyone or any of us mm-hmm. and that just must have been such a horrible I mean horrific loss itself but also such a side swipe of such a shocking way for it to happen I mean how did you find that it was for you after that with people around you dealing with you in this loss. Did you find it was isolating or did you find that it was something that people rallied around you for? Because, I mean, we've spoken about this actually briefly before once, but I find it's very interesting the difference between the Western and Eastern sort of ways of grief. And (laughs) you were living in London, obviously, at the time. I was, and I went to Morocco. And in Morocco, we just, everyone comes. You know, everybody was at my aunt Christine and my uncle Aziz's house. 
Um, and <laughs> there were actually funny parts to it. All her ex-boyfriends came. <laughs> and, you know, my uncle and my aunt, they have a lot of humor. They're literally burying their daughter. And it was tragic. And it was the most beautiful burial because normally uh, at funerals in Muslim countries, you only have men, a Muslim man. For her funeral, you had men, women, um, um, the rabbi of Marrakesh, who, whose son was such good friends with her, was there carrying the coffin. Um, you know, it was beautiful. Uh, the, oh my God, I have goosebumps. It was the most beautiful funeral all together. We, uh, so many people. There were dozens and dozens, maybe over a hundred, I don't remember. There were so many people, people from the streets who were touched by her art. And she changed things in the country because she was, a, she was an artist and she came from a privileged background. And her photography was about underprivileged people. Um, she was a woman, French, Moroccan, so Christian and Muslim. Um, so, but during the funeral, so we buried her. Um, within 24 hours, no, a bit more because we had to, her body had to come back to be brought back, um, and then everyone was in the house for three days, um, and so many of her ex-boyfriends flew over from the U.S., from Italy, <laughs> <laughs> and what was brilliant is her then fiance was like, "Who are you?" And this guy was like, "What? She never mentioned me." <laughs> We had all these dramas going on. My aunt comes to me and goes, oh my God, we have a drama with all the exes who are now talking and the stories don't add up. And we're looking at this guy going, come on, Layla. Oh my God, that is hilarious. <laughs> and one of them stayed with my uncle and aunt. He lived like in the house because they have quite a big house in La Palmeray, in the, uh, in the palm tree forest uh, in Marrakech. I think he stayed in the guest house for for six months taking pictures because he was a, a photographer, artist too. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. Um, a, another one made a movie. I mean, it was, there were all these stories and there was a lot of love and so many of her friends that she had told me so much about, I became closer to afterwards. You know, there's still, her memory was very strong, but in, in our culture, we all get together and there's that really you know, we, there's a lot of crying, a lot of suffering, but there's also life and you all eat together. And the, the, the mourning period is 40 days. At the end of the, uh, 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 of the mourning period, you all meet again. There is a big meal and all of that. And after that, you are meant to go back to life. It is our duty after a loss to once we've mourned it, it's important to, 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 to really embrace that period of sadness to be able to get over. Unfortunately, it took me more than 40 days to finish that suffering in me, but that, those are the rules. And I think it's quite healthy because one has to come back to life and for the living. It's really interesting though, isn't it? Like you say, the, I think why that must work as a way in Eastern culture, um, as, a, as a great way, is because, I mean, I've found from, you know, losing two members of my family whilst being British and being in the UK that while some people are incredible with how to handle death, others are 
like mind-bogglingly like crazily stupid with it <laughs> it just makes me laugh as into the point where you think did you actually just say that I mean I've had a um I've had a, a godmother at my dad's funeral come up to me and say you know I'm not very good with funerals you and I'm like what did you just say to me? Like a movie. <laughs> Literally like a movie. And I was like, you can't be that emotionally unintelligent and weird with death. But, you know, a lot of the British people are because I think we haven't, and this is, you know, I'm British and I love my culture, but we haven't been taught in the West how to sort of show emotion in the same way of like holding it in that space that it makes people feel like, okay, I'm safe to just lose my shit for 40 days around those that I love and I know people will be there for me um and I think there's that sort of fine line between some people who are incredible at doing that and then the other side of people feeling like they don't want to be that burden when they're in the western culture because they shouldn't be showing that emotion or they shouldn't be you know doing this or that and so I guess the whole 40 days thing from what you're saying is like you know for sure that those 40 days you know, people are expecting you to be a total, you know, mess and expecting you to want them to be around and expecting you to ask for help or, you know, whatever way it comes. Um, and I think it's it's very interesting sort of how sometimes over here there's that thing of, oh, I just maybe I should give them space at this point when actually... It's the opposite. Yeah. We held tight. Literally, it's the opposite. I think it's because there's a taboo, so... Unfortunately, actually, I've lost um, Unfortunately, I've lost an uncle last week, and he was like the patriarch in the family. Um, and I, I was I was just picking up the children from school when I had the news, I'm and so my sorry. first reaction was really Western. I thought, okay, I'm not going to tell them. I'm going to deal with this later on. And I thought, no, no, they're going to see that I'm a mess. So I said to them, I said, boys, did he say, my uncle said has passed away? And they're like, oh, no. And I said, let's do a prayer for his soul. So the three of us were in the car. We prayed for his soul. Then the logistics of me going back to Morocco because of the travel restrictions and, and all the things that are happening at school with the children. And for the end of year, I couldn't make it. So I'm going to go um, in a couple of weeks. But I, at the beginning, I thought, I'm not going to tell my followers. It's too negative. I don't want to put that on them. And then I, 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 again, that was like the Western approach. And I took a step back and I thought, no. Death is a taboo. Illness is a taboo. It's by talking about it that actually we're going to heal. It is human. Every single person that I meet you tell them you had health issues, they go, oh, my God, poor you. And then they feel comfortable with you, and they start telling you all their, their little... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Open the door. <laughs> we are humans. We're soul in this vessel, which is a body, and, and it's bound to fail at some point. So I, I told my followers, I said, you know, I, I didn't want to tell you, but then I thought that there should not be a taboo. So yesterday I've lost my uncle. I'm going to take a bit of time off. Uh, and the messages, the outpouring of support. I said, I know you're going to be sending lovely messages because we're such a warm and kind community. I just thank you in advance. Um, but I thought I would share with you because it, it shouldn't be a taboo and death is part of life. 
I'm so sorry if you're lost, Yalda, but I love the way you said that. And it's, it is true. It's, it's the taboo side that needs to change and the reality that death is the fate we all share. So it's time to get used to that together instead of being so um, you know, scared of talking about it. But I mean, I just think as well, you know, when you talk about, for example, you had that moment of thinking, no, okay, actually, I have to I have to do this. I have to say this and just let this out. And I think that's so wonderful. And it is so true. We see those like moments in someone else and suddenly it's relatable. And you never know if one person can be affected by that, you know, message. I'm sure so many were because you've got those messages themselves probably telling you of similar stories or recent events as well as support for you. And it brings people together in that way and I think that's that's such an important thing to remember that actually what we need to do with those kind of things with grief and loss is come together not cause ourselves even more separation when you're already feeling separate from the one you love or loved um exactly because it made me feel better the fact that they sent all those messages really warmed my heart up and it was a much better thing than saying nothing yeah yeah, so I love that. Um, well, okay, so I want to ask you just, I'd love to first of all, well, a few things. So <laughs> what does spirituality personally mean to you? Because you're obviously someone who has a deep sense of spirituality. You know, you said you prayed when you found out that news and you're not scared of death and you've had those experiences and you believe in God. So I always say, you know, it means something different to everyone and that's what's beautiful about it, finding all your own senses. So what does spirituality personally mean to you? Uh, what does spirituality, is that your question? Yeah. Um, so interestingly, my parents are complete atheists. Wow, that's so interesting. And so was I until I became sick. Mm. And when I became sick, I started praying for, just thinking, you know, the universe for uh, the nurses who have one of the toughest jobs and are not paid much. And who were, you know, taking care of me and all these people. Um, I started praying for um, Alma and two, who were the two ladies looking after my children when I was in hospital. I started praying for others. And whenever I prayed, I felt so good. Then I started praying for my own recovery, not knowing I was tapping into neuroplasticity. So your brain produces the cells you, you, you actually imagine. So if you imagine you're going to die... You have many more chances of dying than if you imagine you're going to survive. Uh, so I noticed my symptoms were getting better every time I prayed for my own recovery as well. And whenever I was grateful for the world, because the brain-gut connection, 60% of your neurotransmitters are produced in the gut. 90% of your serotonin is produced in the gut. There's a very strong brain-gut connection. So that's how I have become spiritual. <laughs> I so, love that. Um, you know, I might be completely off, but it doesn't matter. It works. So if it works, I keep on doing it. <laughs> I love that. That's true. That's the thing. It's about what um, you know, what works for you in whatever way spirituality comes. And I think that's what I hope a lot more people because you know, I, I you know, I have a huge place in my heart for religions, but I think for the atheists out there, religion has been a very separating thing because it feels so far out from what they could possibly, you know. Um, co possibly comprehend and whereas spirituality is about finding that deeper connection within yourself and something outside of yourself and for you having that you know journey with like the prayers and hospital and your brain and your gut it's like that's your own sense of what brought you through that and I think that's so beautiful 
Yeah, because the thing with religions is you have all these human layers between you and God or the universe or nature, whatever you want to call it. And so there is a human element which truly bothers me. Mm, um, same. <laughs> because I'm so free-spirited. But I also think that the reason why everyone now meditates is because they don't go to church anymore. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> Meditation is a church. <laughs> yeah, there, there, was this, there was this mental hygiene where people every Sunday or every Friday or every Saturday, depending on their religion, would do something that is not related to things that are material. Mm-hmm. So on the Eat, Burn, Sleep lifestyle, the morning and evening Quick meditation routines I give to people to help rewire the subconscious brain and tap into neuroplasticity, they must do them. It's not an option. It's part of the recovery process. Yeah, I love that. I think I love that. It's like, yeah, meditation is church. I think it's so true. People are finding their own sort of, if they haven't been going to church or if they don't, they're actually, without realizing, creating their own little sacred routines. And, uh, it's definitely a, a powerful thing. So I'd love to just finish to ask you some quick fire questions on um, some of the things we talked about. So obviously inflammation is such a huge topic and you must have, like you said, you've got you know, over 200 recipes on the platform, but what are your top, say, three tips for bringing inflammation down with your diet and the body? Um, the number one thing is sleep. It is the foundation for health. You can't, you know, that's why when people are sick, they spend a lot of time in bed. Mm. So sleeping is very important. The second thing is breathing. That's why yoga, meditation, things that calm you down are very important. For example, cancer cells live off two things, glucose, which is basically sugar, and CO2. So when you are stressed and you're not breathing properly you have many more chances of developing cancer and the third thing and i know all of this is not related to diet (laughs) the third very 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 important thing is people and social interactions it's been shown to be the number one factor when it comes to longevity so my method is very much geared for people to continue having a normal life and seeing people it's not about your at-home meal prepping, only anti-inflammatory foods. You can pick low-inflammation foods in restaurants. It's very mm. important for me that you continue seeing your friends and, and your family and your colleagues because that is so important. Produces oxytocin, serotonin, GABA, all these good hormones. Yeah, I love that. That's definitely something that obviously people have had such a harsh reality of in this last year of how important that really is and something that quite a few of us have probably taken for granted without realizing and it's um yes so wonderful for people to really like realize that now everyone's like gagging to see one another it's so nice um and so what is one book that has you'd really recommend when it comes to you know anti-inflammatory or nutrition or all the things you've learned um, I've read so many books. Um, there is one book which I've read recently, which I have absolutely loved. So books about inflammation, I'm going to be writing it. But Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, because, I, you know, everything that, that I have is really truly my own um, finding. But 
there is a book which I find fascinating and is amazing to listen to as well as read. And I, I listen to it on Audible. I was on holidays in France with my children. They got hooked to the book. It's about neuroplasticity. Oh, I love those kind of books. Yes. It's a book called Into the Magic Shop by a neuroscientist called James Dotty, D-O-T-T-Y. And I highly recommend reading it or listening to it. And that's going to show you the impact of your thoughts on your life by a neuroscientist. Oh, I love that. I'm not definitely going to get that on Audible. hippie, you know, <laughs> person in Goa telling you, you know, for, for the skepticals, this is an <laughs> amazing book to read or listen to. Oh, amazing. I'm definitely going to get that. Thank you. I've never heard of that one. Love a good book recommendation. I was reading like 10 books at the same time. <laughs> By Audible is great. So if, if it's one to listen to with a nice voice, I, I love that. Um, and to finally, to finish, do you have, you know, is there one mantra or, you know, quote or anything that in a mantra for you that keeps you going? Yes, I don't, I've never shared it with anyone. So sometimes you want to, you want to get, you know, you, you have goals and you strive very hard for your goals. So my goal is to help as many people in the world as possible. So whatever I have been through was not in vain the time that I've missed with my children when they were small, that's quality time because I'm, I'm very maternal and, 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 you know, there was a lot of quality time I've missed out on. Um, so my goal is actually to help as many people in the world as possible with their health. And that is the end goal, but then on the road, there are many things that you hope are going to go your way and oftentimes they don't because that's life. And I often think of, you know, that I shouldn't give up. I shouldn't give up, I shouldn't give up. As long as it's helping people, I shouldn't give up. And when something that I wanted doesn't come my way, I always think I will reach my goal with or without it. Mm. I always think it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You will get there. The road sometimes can be a bit longer, but you will get there no matter what. And I keep repeating this in my head. And I always think I want to do this for the rest of my life. I have found my path. I love that. And uh, oh, so beautiful and such an amazing path to have found. So I'm going to be putting all the information in, in the show notes. People can find you on uh, Instagram and social media and the platform and the website and your podcast as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Yara. It was so wonderful speaking to you. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me as a guest. you enjoyed today's episode with the wonderful Yalda and was filled with inspiration and information about what you can do to help your physical health so much and like I said I can't recommend checking out the platform and all her recipes highly enough use the code she's given us Alice20 at checkout and see what you think 
If you did enjoy this episode, then please let us know, share us in your stories, tag us on social media, find me at lawali underscore life on Instagram. We would love to know and I will look forward to sharing with you Sophie Alvis' incredible story next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day.